Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. This is the conversation we love to have about food, passion, and making a difference in the world, and also about people who are dealing with really challenging problems and tend to come up with creative and innovative solutions, in some cases, over the course of a long lifetime of dedication. And our guest, Jack Shankoff, fits all of those criteria. I have been so eager to talk to you, Jack, because it's been all of, I think, five days since we had dinner with our wives. Uh, And so uh, I've not only always been interested in following you professionally, but uh, feel blessed to be able to call you and uh, your wife, Freddie, friends as well. So it's uh, it's really been a very meaningful and enriching relationship for us. Oh, my goodness, Billy. I couldn't, um, I, I, I can't even tell you how much I treasure our relationship and how happy I am to be part of this. So thanks for the honor. Well, Jack, I want to tell people a little bit about uh, who you are. I went to print out um, your your bio and I, my printer ran out of paper because it's so long in terms of the awards and the distinctions, literally. Uh, but, you know, I think you're best known in a lot of ways for uh, being the director at Harvard Center for the Developing Child. Uh, you also, uh, I think, uh, teach uh, and are associated with the T.H. The Chan School of Public Health at Harvard. And I know that you're also chairing the National Scientific Council on the Developing Child. You and I first met, though, uh, when you were dean of the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University. We had a mutual friend who uh, persuaded you to have me come and be a guest at one of your classes. So um, I've known you for a long time. And uh, the longer I do this work, the longer I bump into people who uh, are awestruck that I know Jack Shonkoff because of your pioneering work. But let's let's start at the very uh, beginning. You're a- Oh, Billy, can I interrupt you for one second? I hope this isn't taken in the wrong way, but um, I really appreciate the generous introduction. Um, but I, I also have faculty appointments at the Graduate School of Education and the Medical School at Harvard, and I get into trouble if only one is mentioned, about the School of Public Health. So this is not self-promoting, but I just want to cover myself. No, and I warned you, I ran, the printer ran out of paper because your list of, <laughs> uh, of uh, both professional accomplishments is so long. But I'm glad you mentioned that. Thank you for doing that. Um, and I know that um, I think you're uh, an NYU-trained uh, uh, doctor uh, with pediatric training at the Bronx Municipal Hospital Center uh, and the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Uh, let's start at the very beginning in terms of how you decided to be uh, a doc. Well, you know, I wish I had an exotic uh, story to tell, but um, I was, it was a typical adolescent, uh, very uh, stereotypic response. I was consumed with the inequalities and injustices of the world. I was a child of the late 60s, and um, I, um, I saw medicine generally and pediatrics in particular as a way to have a career to make a difference in the lives of children and make the world a better place. It was uh, naive and innocent. And um, that was, I I was a government major as an undergraduate, um, decided to go to medical school because I wanted to make the world better for kids. Nothing more elegant or complicated than that. Uh, And does all that still hold true? Yeah, oh God, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, docs still have the ability to do that, right? Uh, yeah, they hard. They, it's hard in the in the healthcare system we have, but for sure, a lot of people, uh, for a lot of people, that is the major motivator, no question. And then your career took a turn as you started to focus on policy and systems change and the intersection of 
uh, child health and development with poverty and trauma and their earliest experiences, starting to understand how it literally impacts uh, the architecture of the brain. And I know you, your work currently focuses on the revolution in biology and neuroscience and what all of that means. When did the, the turn come for you? So I picture you with, you know, the stethoscope pulled in little, little babies on your, on your, uh, your doctor's table, checking them out. And then at some point, some light bulb going off saying, I've got to do more than this. Yeah, well, actually, I started out working as a practicing pediatrician as part of my training program, uh, in a, working in a neighborhood health center in the South Bronx in New York. And I expected that I would spend my life as a primary care pediatrician in, a, in an urban health center. And um, it didn't take a lot of imagination um, to figure out pretty quickly that the problems facing um, poor kids and, uh, and families facing all kinds of adversities were not going to get solved in the doctor's office or a hospital. And that kind of really had to figure out how to relate to the larger context in which families are raising kids. And so I I actually did a fellowship, um, I moved up to Children's Hospital in Boston and did a fellowship to learn more about child development and developmental disabilities. Um, to make a long story short, um, I got seduced into academia and spent two years at Children's Hospital and then went out to University of Massachusetts Medical School and chaired the Division of Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics. So I, I kind of got seduced into academia. It wasn't part of my master plan. Um, and, um, and, but I thought I would stay in pediatrics for my career, um, but then had an early midlife angst <laughs> about kind of changes in the healthcare system and how things were being controlled more and more just by the economics of healthcare. And I did a career shift. I moved to Heller School um, at Brandeis where I was the dean. That's probably a longer story about how I went from one to the other. But that's when you and I met Billy. And um, and so I left not only pediatric practice, but academic medicine and became immersed in the world of social policy. Uh, and is that is that a, um, a hard thing to do personally? Like I, when I think of, you know, having hands on little kids and the fulfillment of, you know, maybe a mom bringing their kid in who's not well and you making them well, I and mean, is that a hard thing to separate yourself from? Yeah, I, um, yeah, yes, and no. I mean, this is the ag. I, I think of this as the agony of the privileged. I mean, I could have continued to um, stay in in clinical medicine. I was still doing a lot of teaching and doing other things, but still seeing patients. But I kind of have gone back and forth. Had gone back and forth in those early years between wanting to just really make a difference in the world but often feeling like it's too hard to make a difference in the world. And so I'll make a difference for the kids and families who I interact with and the programs that I interact with. And I went back and forth on that, um, but realized that you couldn't do both and um, had an opportunity to get involved in some um, with some folks and some uh, programs that, that gave me some access to think about how I might uh, have some influence on, on some of the larger issues and just decided that I couldn't do both and, um, and moved on. So if you ask me, do I miss uh, actually engaging with kids and families um, in a doctor-patient relationship? I got tremendous pleasure out of that, and, um, but had to make a choice, and I made that choice. Um, so, yeah, you can't be a part-time doctor. People said, well, why don't you do that once a day, one day a week? And I don't think you can do that part-time. Well, bear, bear with me while I drill down on this just a little bit more in terms of making the choice. And I'm curious in terms of um, as you were seeing 
patients is it what you were seeing in terms of what the kids presented with and some of the uh, kind of like the socioeconomic issues that manifested themselves in, in their health? Or was it the larger, you, you mentioned like the economic issues of the healthcare system? Um, I'm just trying to get a sense of like what you were seeing as you were um, being a physician that, um, that made you think, I've got to do, do so- something else. I've got to make this. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's, it's a great question. And actually, um, it's, it's always in the front of my mind um, in my teaching because I interact with mostly graduate students, some undergraduates, but all of whom have varying stories of wanting to make a difference in the world and wanting to affect the lives of children, particularly children and families who face a whole lot of serious adversity. And um, the the way I frame this whole thing is that there, there are, you need to find your place on the map. If you're interested in the well-being of, of children um, and families in all kinds of circumstances, and you want to make a difference, um, there are lots of places to play. You can, you can be a provider of direct services. You can run a program. You can run a delivery system. You can be a policymaker. You can be an advocate. You can be a change agent on the ground. And we need good people in every one of those places because none of them alone is going to kind of um, be enough to solve the problem. So for me, I like to use my my personal journey as as a model for students who are agonizing about what to do next um, and to say that none of my career chapters were part of a master plan. And uh, the only thing that stayed the same was my my just my sense of a calling to try to do something about inequities and inequalities and outcomes and that there are lots of ways to do it. So um, I, I think my story is my story, but it, there are variations on that theme that so many people have. Um, no one perspective, no one niche is going to solve this problem. And we need people to find their place on that map. I found my place on that map. Each successive job was the best job I ever had until the next one. And then that became the best place on the map for me. So that's in a nutshell, that's kind of how I look at it. There are so many different ways that you can make a difference. Part of what I hear you saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the um, kind of the searching is okay, uh, which is something that I, you know, often encourage young people. Like you don't have to have a linear path to 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 you know, where you end up. And most of us, if you look at, I think a lot of we've certainly had a lot of guests on on this podcast on Add Passion and Stir who took anything but a linear path, but tended to follow their passions or the feedback that they got from the the marketplace, whether it was a for-profit or a non-profit marketplace. And uh, I feel particularly when you're young, uh, you should understand that the the searching is is all right. That's an okay, you're not wasting time. Um, Jack, how long were you at the Heller School at Brandeis? I was was the dean there for 11 years. Uh, And did you go from there to uh, center on the developing child, and then they had a they had a vision of uh, what the center could be, and you kind of co created it with them. Is that what happened? Uh, the provost at the time was really big on creating interactions across the university. There had been a previous attempt to set up a university wide center focused on children, and it did not succeed. Um, and they wanted to try again. <laughs> I did some due diligence to try to find out why it didn't succeed. Um, because there were several successive directors, none of whom stayed very long in that position. Didn't succeed because nobody really had a passion to do it. 
Um, there wasn't much uh, in terms of resources put on the table, and it didn't really have a sense of what it would do other than just bring people together. And so it was lucky because my whole thing was kind of bringing together different disciplines and all around the same mission. So it was uh, it was kind of a lucky convergence of of they were wanted they wanted to take another shot at a university wide center on children, and I was looking for a place to go to kind of get back deeply into early childhood. One interesting thing to add to this, Billy, is that the people who were funding me at that time um, urged me to leave university setting and um, and set up a 501c3. They thought it would really help liberate me from the, the bureaucracies of the university setting. Um, I decided that I wanted to give that opportunity at Harvard a try. So, um, and it turned out to be a good decision. But um, once again, I, I don't want to obsess about Julie Richmond, but you always like to quote Louis Pasteur, who said, chance favors the prepared mind. And the fact that when things come up and people say, I can't believe how lucky I am that this opportunity arose, he said, you know, it's not luck. He said, you, you're always spending your time preparing yourself for the next really good opportunity that comes around and you don't see it until you're ready for it. And then there it is. I mean, there's another, I mean, we, we got into this mentoring theme here, but Oh my God, I still remember that message and I, I pass it on uh, to so many other people about how you can't predict what lies ahead in your career and especially if you want to make a difference in the world for kids. But whatever you're doing, and if you're learning and you're growing and you're getting better at what you do, there will always be opportunities out there. You just hopefully when you see them, you're prepared to give it a shot. So, Jack, let's jump ahead to um, now, many years later, uh, the focus, the mission, the impact of uh, Harvard Center on the Developing Child. For people who don't know it, what should they know about it? It's, it's a university-based center that um, brings together um, the best thinking from multiple sources of knowledge um, with a heavy emphasis on science. And so our original concept was that um, our mission was to leverage cutting edge scientific knowledge to drive fresh thinking about how to address the needs of children facing significant adversity. So it, um, I, another, another general statement I'd make is that anything I've ever been a part of that succeeded has been because I have surrounded myself by people who are smart about things that I'm not that smart about, but that are really relevant to what I'm doing. So I, the, 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 the kind of the, the, the precursor to the concept of the center was the work that I had, had the opportunity to do with the Board on Children, Youth and Families at the National Academy of Sciences Institute of Medicine. So I, I, I was involved in some projects there um, early in my career and um, actually was the, um, the, the vice chair of the board on children, youth and families when it was begun and then became the chair of that board. And, um, and I really, really resonated to this concept of, of being a source of, of credible, trusted scientific knowledge to address complex issues without getting involved in partisan politics. So, and I'll take a minute to explain it because it really is the model for what we did with the center at Harvard. Um, the National Academy of Sciences was set up by Abraham Lincoln to have a place where the government could go 
to get the best available scientific knowledge to address complicated problems. And um, the Board on Children, Youth and Families was was set up to address a broad range of issues. And um, so I got involved a lot in, in the policy world. And one of the things I learned, I had this unbelievable opportunity to spend a lot of time working with, with Ted Kennedy, who taught me the difference between advocates who would come before the committees that he was involved in, who were very knowledgeable about, about scientific knowledge, but were understood to have a partisan agenda. So they would use the science to drive a partisan argument with when they got involved in, in government. So when people in government wanted to know, okay, so would, would the scientists who generate the knowledge have a different way of presenting it? When they go to the scientists directly, they never understand what they're saying. They either can't understand the jargon or they, um, or they get an answer like, well, it could be this, it could be that, we don't really know. And so it was Ted Kennedy who helped me understand this concept of being a knowledge broker, which is kind of being willing to roll your sleeves up and jump into the political arena, but but develop credibility as being a good source of knowledge that people across the political spectrum could go to and trust. And so it was that model of being a, um, a non partisan source of knowledge that's relevant for political decision-making. That was the, the model and the inspiration for how the center was set up, which is that we would be based at Harvard. We would draw on faculty from around the university. We would draw on the best knowledge sources. Um, there are in other places. Uh, uh, tell you a little secret, not all of the smart people are at Harvard, although there are a lot of smart people there. Um, and so the concept was that we would, we would synthesize and translate and make not credible scientific knowledge accessible and actionable for people out there in the policy and the service delivery world. I think we were learning over the years and the COVID experience really nailed it, is that the best science can only go so far if it doesn't align with the lived experiences of people out there, the lived experiences of families raising kids, the lived experiences of, of policymakers and service providers, because the, my lesson from the pandemic experience was breathtaking breakthroughs in scientific achievement happened in like no one had ever expected before. Never before was a vaccine for a, a new virus that never existed before developed in a year in those therapeutics. And it was differentially effective because there were people who didn't trust it and didn't believe it. And there were people in the political world who demonized it. And so for me, that was a real wake-up call that science has to be at the table, but that science is not going to have all the answers. And if it does have an answer, it's not going to carry any weight unless it aligns with the lived experiences of people. And lived experiences for me used to mean families raising kids in lots of different circumstances. But now I've also broadened that to say it also has to be lived experiences of people making policy. <laughs> and people kind of running programs. And if, if we don't engage where they're at, then it's all just academics. And that's the, the constant fear when you're in a university is that you can be irrelevant to real world problems. So I think I know what you mean, but I wanna make sure because when, it, when the science does not align with people's lived experience, uh, I know you're not saying you, you don't change the science because right. the science is the science, the data is the data. Yep. But I, I think you're saying you change the way you communicate it or the way you um, make it relevant and germane to people who might have a different lived experience than the scientists themselves. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'll add one other 
piece to that. I mean, for starters, Billy, I mean, you, um, the idea is a lot of people in academia are in this on the supply side of things. They've got knowledge to give and, and advice to give and things to share. And I, several years ago, someone helped me understand that I need to pay attention to the demand side as well. So we're not just supplying knowledge. We have to be responding to demands out there. And so for me, the issue is, yeah, absolutely. It would be an existential threat to our center to say, to talk out of two sides of our mouth and, and say, this is the science to some people and give a different story to others. So the issue is not, is not to kind of tell a different story or present different information, but to kind of make the science ex responsive to the kinds of challenges and problems that people are trying to address and to kind of understand the frame that people bring to this. We spend a lot of time, we work with the Frameworks Institute in DC that, that really has tremendous expertise in understanding how you communicate things, not, not to spin them, but to pay attention to your audience and to pay attention to not just what you say, but what they hear. And so, yeah, so for me, the learning curve, so great to still be learning at this point, is that science, what science has to say is what science has to say, but how it's communicated is uh, not to lecture people about what science knows, but to find out how science can add useful value to challenges and unmet needs that they're addressing and bring it on those terms. Uh, do, you want, do, you, do you want me to give you a very striking example, one of my favorites? So I was in South Carolina years ago. We Personally, I've, I've preferred to work in conservative states um, as opposed to just preaching to the converted. And I was in South Carolina talking about how early experience literally shapes the developing circuitry of the brain. Um, and um, there was uh, was introduced to someone who I'm not going to name him now, but it was described as the most conservative state senator in South Carolina. That was saying a lot at that time. I think today he might be. I think today he might be considered a moderate, but at that time he was he was the most conservative senator in the legislature, and he was riveted by this notion of the fact that 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 brain circuitry, brain connections, are literally shaped by experience. And when I had a conversation with him and trying to find out, you know, what was engaging about with him, he said, so he was a fierce uh, proponent of intelligent design. And for him, um, that was proof that God, it's God's will and God's influence that resulted in experience shaping the brain. And the irony of that is that that comes from evolutionary biology, that concept. But what was really cool about this is that um, and he understood that. It was like, it didn't matter. I didn't get an argument with him about how this isn't God's design, it's evolutionary biology. It was like he was really taken with what the science was saying. And that had an impact on him. And he actually, you know, he said to me, you should you should create some more educational opportunities for, I'm, I'm quoting him, so this is not my words. You should provide more education for bigoted rednecks like me to... Um, to understand this because it's really important. And for him, it was doing God's work. Um, and But the important thing is that the science was really powerful there. And he became a member of the Children's Caucus in the legislature. And he was actually the chair of the committee that oversaw um, the budget allocations for the prison system that was getting more and more expensive. And so it was a great lesson for me about how you don't, you don't, kind of mess around with the science and say different things to different people. 
but present it in a way that's that's just really telling people this is what we've learned. This is what your tax dollars have paid for to produce all this new knowledge. And how could it be useful to you as opposed to let me tell you what you should do? Now, I know, I, and I know that you've learned many, many things over the years at, at the center. Uh, I've always felt that one of the anchors underpinning that, um, not to boil all your time there down to one thing, but it, it, as you were just speaking about the circuitry of the brain being affected by experience and particularly uh, I know you've been a, a, a kind of a, a, a beacon of light on the issue of how poverty and, and, and trauma and the earliest childhood experiences literally affect brain development. I think for you, you probably take this for granted now as, as settled law, and I, and, I, and I know that it is, but for I think for a lot of people are probably still like the, the South Carolina state rep who are thinking like, really? Uh, how does that work? What, do, what does that mean? What are, the, what are the implications for us as a society and for the policies that we make, uh, knowing now that that is true? Yeah. So it, again, Billy, it's I, I, what I've learned about the power of making complicated science understandable without dumbing it down is that it just can change the nature of the conversation. And as long as it's not presented in a, in a bullying kind of way about, so you need to listen to this and let me tell you what you should do with it. It, um, it gets us closer to kind of, um, getting beyond this issue that, that the, the hardships and the threats and the stresses of poverty and racism and other inequities are not inevitable. Um, and that this is get tricky because, um, there's a slippery slope from talking about biology. Um, to having people interpret that as meaning biology is destiny. And if early experiences affect your brain circuits, then whatever happens is, um, you know, you're, you're doomed if you've had really rough experiences and significant trauma. What's really been important about helping people understand this is that um, there's huge variability in sensitivity to these kinds of traumas and that the early experiences shift the odds. They don't determine exactly what's going to happen. So it, it, it's, it's again, it's the balance, not to, to kind of be a spinmeister, but to help people understand the essence of the biology, is that all these things do is they increase the risk of, of, of poor outcomes, or they increase the likelihood of positive outcomes. And it's never too late to kind of try to get things back on track if they're off track. But it's easier and better and you get a better outcome if you get it right early rather than try to fix things later. So we, we all own up to the fact that when we, in our council working with the Frameworks Institute, coined the term toxic stress in 2005 uh, in a working paper that we put out to kind of really, and, and to lay out the causal story. It wasn't just saying, well, bad things happen. It's to tell, connect the dots for people. Tell them the story of why these things happen. And it got, it really was, a, it, it went viral and, and toxic stress is, is often misinterpreted and some, and very often it's seen as a doomsday sentence and kind of we, so after a few years, I learned I never talk about toxic stress or excessive stress activation and what's going on inside the body without also talking about adaptation and resilience and the fact that you can build resilience against that. And so um, it, it's a tricky thing. To, to not um, not overwhelm people with a, a very gloomy 
um, it's hopeless kind of future, but not underplay the importance of this. And um, the ultimate fallback is that it's no, it's no great discovery in every country in the world for more than 100 years, regardless of their education system or the healthcare system, we know that people who are very poor and experience trauma and hardships are more likely have a higher rate of problems in school and problems with chronic health problems in adults and die and don't live as long. So that's not new news. What, what the science is doing is opening up, opening up the hood and looking inside uh, or opening up the black box and explaining why that's so, explaining what's going on inside the body. And, and the recent stuff that we've been doing is, is it's not just about the brain. It's also about the immune system. It's also about metabolic systems. So the begin, in the beginning, the focus was all on early learning and readiness to succeed in school. But the same principles also apply to these other biological systems that explain not just differences in, in school readiness and educational achievement, but differences in why do we have much higher rates of heart disease and diabetes and hypertension and stroke in people who are poor and people who grew up and experienced a lot of adversity. This is not genetic. It's the result of experience. And I've heard you, Jack, reference, um, you know, kind of the revolution in biology and neuroscience. And I guess my two questions for you about that are, uh, one, I think you were just kind of getting at. Part of that is, I'm assuming, new abilities to actually look inside the body and see how changes correlate with the kind of impact you've been describing. Uh, but then my other question is, is, is the nature of science such that this revolution is uh, endless? I mean, it probably felt like there was a revolution in biology and neuroscience 10 years ago, and it does it feel even more profound today. And, and I assume that, again, the nature of science is we can just expect to keep learning things that we never even imagined we could understand. Absolutely. No question about that. I mean, there were revolutions in biology hundreds of years ago. But but the one thing that, that the history points up, Billy, which is really important to always keep on the table, especially now, um, is that um, the history of biological research um, has some really ugly parts to it. Um, a, lot of, a lot of kind of pioneering work in biology a couple hundred years ago was tightly intertwined with white supremacy thinking and racist ideology. Um, and um, so there's an understandable uh, reservoir of distrust on the part of communities of color and particularly black people about the fact that biology has not been good. Um, not, I don't mean biology has been bad in terms of, um, of uncovering um, unfortunate truths. It's been bad in perpetuating um, ignorance and, um, and just downright wrong knowledge about this. So there's nothing, there's no genetic basis to race. Um, it's, it's, and there's, um, so it's, it's very tricky when we start to bring the revolution of biology. The other thing I would say is that it's funny in the old days, in the 20th century, <laughs> the late 1900s, you know, this long, this longstanding debate between nature versus nurture, how much of, how much of the way we are and, and how healthy we are. And, and our capabilities, how much is kind of genetically hardwired and how much is influenced by experience. And of course, to fast forward to today, the Human Genome Project put the final nail in the coffin. You can't separate the two. Everything about biology is the interaction between individual genetic variation and, exper and experiences and exposures. So, you know, you have cancers that run in a family. It clearly is a genetic basis, but not everybody in the family gets it. 
and you have can you have an area where all of a sudden there's a high prevalence of some cancer and people say, oh my goodness, there must be something in the water or the soil and there is something. And clearly that's creating this increased risk, but not everybody who lives there gets the cancer. So everything is the result of that interaction. So in the old days, people used to say, well, nature versus nurture, if it's, if it's genetic, we can't do anything about it. So we're going to have to change the environment. The irony, it's like your question about looking forward. <laughs> the irony is we're not that far away from being able to change genetics easier than we can change the environment, right? And that's uh, with all of the biological revolution to come about gene manipulation, and it's going to have amazing impacts on treating a lot of diseases. But um, also the environment is not so easy to change. So no matter how we look at where are the levers to kind of level the playing field for young kids, I sure don't want to live in a world where, it's, where the answer is gene manipulation. And I don't, well, so that's not going to work. And I don't want to live in a world where there'll be some medication. But this whole issue of, um, of how hard it is to change the environment um, is, is critically important because that's what we really have the opportunity to inf influence. And changing the environment will change the way genes operate. Because genes don't operate on automatic pilot. They are turned on and turned off by experiences and by exposures. And I learned about lead poisoning when I was in medical school, and that was decades ago. And how is it possible that still today there's lead in the drinking water um, in communities where young children are living? It's like, so this is where these ultimately have, um, you know, they need political answers and they need public will answers. And there's more than enough science to, to guide us to what would be good political decisions about how to level the playing field. And the challenge is on the implementation side. I know we're um, going to start to run out of time here, Jack. So let me see if I can cover two more things with you. One um, is, is just kind of fun for me knowing you to think of you being a kind of a, a bridge builder between uh, a very conservative South Carolina uh, legislator uh, and uh, the British royal family, because you're also hanging with Princess Kate, uh, known as Catherine, Princess of Wales. How, how did that come about? Oh, my God. So, um, well, you know, we have a website um, that um, we've built over the years that's been a, a platform for credible science in language that people can understand. So, um, and thanks to the miracles of the internet, um, you know, so our platform has, has gotten a fair amount of visibility around the world. So our stuff is out there and we have a lot of interactions with people around the world who are interested in the stuff that we do. And sometime a few years ago, um, I wasn't even aware of it. There was some outreach from, I guess, um, uh, Princess Catherine. Um, they, you know, she and her husband have a royal foundation that we get no money from them and we'll get no money from them. Um, they, his, his pet interest is, uh, is climate change and his moonshot prize. Uh, and her pet interest is early childhood development. And uh, several years ago, people who work with our contacted people on our staff, I didn't even know about it, um, and just kind of wanted more access to our material and wanted um, to be able to kind of get the science behind a lot of the stuff they were doing. And then um, last year, um, Lo and behold, uh, the, uh, William and Catherine were making a visit to Boston, mostly for his moonshot thing. And she requested coming to visit us at our center to, um, to learn more about the stuff we're doing. 
I have to say, um, I was um, I was incredibly impressed with how serious she is about this. Uh, we had an hour conversation, a few of us, with her. She had a notebook. She was very knowledgeable. She was asking questions. She was writing things down. She's serious about this, and this is going to be her focus for um, for kids in the UK and I think probably parts of their Commonwealth. So, um, so yeah. So we're in the early stages of exploring how we might be a resource for them. Um, and um, how they may be uh, yet another valuable um, kind of action arm for us, not anything that we would do. That's the other thing. I mean, I think anything that we've done that's made a difference is because we have um, been able to empower other people to do things that we're not positioned to do. So we'll see where that goes. But um, she, I was very impressed with her authenticity and uh, the seriousness with which she's this is not just a public relations thing she's doing. She's the real deal on this. All right. You, you mentioned the website. Tell us what it's called and how to find it. Or do you have to be a member of the royal family? To <laughs> it's very simple. It's www.developingchild.harvard.edu. Developing child is one word. Um, and we have, well, now we've amassed quite a lot of stuff over the years, but we have working papers and infographics and briefs and videos and podcasts, and um, just to show how you have to kind of go with the world. Like so, over the years, we have about 100,000 people who are subscribers who get a monthly newsletter with whatever is going on. Um, just have to go on the website and, and put in your email address. Um, and we have seen over the years that we, I mean, we, we get we get about, about two and a half million visitors visits to the website a year. Um. Last thing I wanted to cover, and you kind of were getting at this a moment or so ago, I'm thinking of an organization like ours, Share Our Strength. We run the No Kid Hungry campaign. The focus of most of our work is uh, children and the, the families that they're in. We work in collaboration and community with a lot of other child-serving organizations. When I think about, um, and I'm not even sure I'll know how to ask this question the right way, but... Uh, in terms of how an organization like ours can benefit from using uh, your work, uh, it sounds like you were saying a moment ago that the that the science can kind of create some urgency and some credibility for the the policies that we advocate for. For, for I know that you know our listeners here are in many cases involved in other child-serving organizations. What's, what's your recommendation on the best way that we can put to put your good work to work? Oh, my God. First of all, I mean, the work that you've done, Billy, and, and Share Our Strength are, like, inspiring to me. I mean, you, whatever impact we've had, it's nothing compared to the impact that you've had, uh, not only in terms of, of educating people about the importance of, of child nutrition, but actually having something done about it. So, I mean, you know, you're, I mean, you're, you're an inspiration for me as opposed to kind of what we could do for you. The real, the real issue for us is, um, to, to be very simple about it, um, we are only as good as we are used by other people. I, so for me, my, my approach to this with potential partners, because we depend upon partners and other folks outside of our center to use our stuff. So more and more, and the more I get into this, the more I understand in my bones that um, we need out there who might be able to benefit from our stuff to give us guidance about how we can add value. Um, I think that, um, and so uh, I, 
we're, we're even we're doubling down and tripling down now going forward in terms of wanting to um, not only focus on the same stuff we've been focusing on with new knowledge, but also recognizing that the early childhood field has been overwhelmingly focused on the impact of adult-child relationships, whether it be home visiting programs, center-based programs that focusing on the people who care for children, how to provide a safe and protective and, 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 and developmentally enriching experience, all of which is absolutely true. That's old science. It's never been shown to be anything but absolutely correct. But the problem is that it's not just about what parents and other caregivers can do for children. It's about the larger environment in which families are raising kids. And so one of our new agendas is to kind of really dig deeper into the scientific um, understanding of how place matters, how where people live, and how the natural and built environment matters. And and so pediatricians don't know anything about housing. I mean, they know housing matters. But so so our goal now is to make the science more accessible to people who are outside the traditional early childhood field, um, people who are involved in environmental protection, people who are involved in zoning and housing, and to basically bring an early childhood lens. I think for quite honestly, but uh, you and I have talked about this, Billy, I have, oh my God, I would give anything to add value to the work that you're doing. Um, but you guys have already done an amazing job of, of helping the public understand how important, how important nutrition is for children, for brain development, for overall health. If there are things that we could add to that, you know, we'd figure out how to do that. Um, the, um, it's part of the problem is also not wanting to duplicate things that other people do very well and say, well, here we are, we're going to do it. You know, well, big shot, what are you adding? So um, we're much more now in the kind of responding to kind of how people see us as adding value rather than going out there and saying, here we are, aren't you lucky that we're bringing all the science to the table? Okay, so the ball's in our court. We're, this is a challenge. We're going to come back to you. No, but, but I, th that's, that's the other thing is that we... Uh, we may not be capable of doing more than what you've already done really well. Um, but that, people think we're smarter about everything and we're not. But but our eagerness to kind of partner with people where we can add value is sky high. And I'm sure you have the same mentality that I do and um, you know, appreciate everything you've said about our work. But there's still so much more to do, uh, which is you know where our, our focus tends to be. Uh, I am so grateful for you taking the time, Jack. This has been a great conversation. It's exactly the one I wanted to have. Uh, although... Uh, I, I don't think it's our last conversation because there's there's more to explore together. But we've been talking with Jack Shonkoff from Harvard Center on the Developing Child, uh, a great friend and a great leader in this space. And uh, if you go to the website, uh, say the website again. Uh, www.developingchild.harvard.edu. So that's where you'll find more information on all of this. And everything there is free. Everything is free. Fantastic. Um, and uh, we will have uh, this uh, podcast on our Share Our Strength website as well, uh, which is a uh, updated and a refreshed website. And you'll not only find this conversation, but other great conversations that we've had. Um, so on behalf of all of us at Share Our Strength, uh, thanks to our producer, District Productive, and particularly to Peter Ogburn, who's been a friend of this podcast and um, uh, in, uh, an incredible resource to us from the very, very beginning, along with Paul Whittle and the team at District Productive and all of my colleagues at Share Our Strength in the No Get Hungry campaign. You can go to adpassionandstir.com and you can rate us and rank us and find previous episodes. Um, thanks so much for listening. Special thanks to you, Jack, 
uh, I'm Billy Shore. So, Billy, you are a cherished friend, and I feel honored by having had this conversation with you. Well, it's really been fun, and I know we're going to have more of them. Mm-hmm.